Your health is our priority. Each series, it's our goal to make sure that we provide you with experts and guests that offer multiple perspectives so that you feel supported, empowered, and less alone. Like the work we do? Buy us a cup of coffee. Or tea. You can leave us a tip over at coffee.com slash the hip podcast, which is ko-fi.com slash the HIP podcast, or with the link in our show notes. When you buy us a cup of coffee, you not only support the work we do, but also gain access to early releases and downloadable resources. Again, that's coffee.com slash the hip podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Health It's Personal. We are in our parenting series where we've spoken with medical professionals, psychologists, and many parents with unique stories. And today, we spoke with an incredible person who is a father of adopted twins. He has also been through a divorce and shares with us his parenting journey which was just such a delight to listen to because his family is just so special and he's so sweet. Yeah, we needed this perspective. We really did, yeah. And I want to keep talking about all these things too because there's so many great topics that we could have gone into so much more detail about. Yeah, well, we're like, he's gay, he has adopted kids, he's divorced, but, but those are things we're all going through and we need some guidance and some wisdom. And now that his kids are teenagers, he probably can look back fairly, you know, objectively and see like the triumphs. Yeah, for sure. And I was thinking that same thing. Like, we want to share these important conversations because there's so many other families going through these things. But at the same time, we also want to celebrate the amazing parts of the family, too. Yeah. And a big part of what he was talking about was that, you know, you go into something like adoption and you have all these horror stories that you've heard. And so you're going into it thinking, okay, how should we speak to them about their birth parents? And how should we talk to them about the fact that we're a gay couple? And, you know, what are all these things that we think are going to be important in their lives? And then as they get older, you realize that maybe those aren't even the things that they're worried about at all. And yeah, there's other things coming into play that you haven't even considered. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, Karen, did you have any of those thoughts when you were, you know, just becoming a parent or even before you had started? Yeah, so something I admire about the journey of the adoptive parent can be really unexpected. And so every day is a different surprise or challenge Mm. or, you know, you don't have a crystal ball, but you don't have a crystal ball as someone carrying a child either or making decisions. What I find really interesting about the adoption journey is that it's very intentional. Mm -hmm. So when you have biological children, it's more common. And so there aren't as many fears maybe around it. And so you just sort of dive in and you just kind of head on your journey. That's true. Yeah. I love that when people are on an adoptive journey, they really think about what their family's going to look like and maybe some challenges that they're going to face. And I kind of went in just like, I want to have a baby <laughs> blindly, not being really prepared and just sort of tackling things as they came about. I think I would have liked to have been more 
prepared ahead of time and thought about things really deeply ahead of time. And I think the adoption process gives you kind of the opportunity to have discussions with your partner, to think about what your family dynamics are going to look like and sort of address the at least the issues that are in your mind, even if those aren't <laughs> the real issues that pop up in yeah. advance. Um, it just seems more intentional. Well, uh, on that note, you also get training and education. Whereas if you're just going to yes. jump into it, you don't really, you have to seek that out yourself. But like we learned today, if you're, especially if you're going through the foster system, you have to go through that training, not only to make sure that you're going to be a good fit for kids and you're a safe space, you know, which is all really important stuff, but also you'd get that education just to prepare you to be a parent, which I don't think a lot of people get. And I, I see a lot of value in that personally. Um, but if you're thinking of adopting, don't worry, because there can still be surprises, as we've learned. <laughs> like, no, you have to go pick up, you know, on your way, you have to go pick up some car seats and some formula. Who knows? <laughs> yes. Um, also, some really amazing surprises. And I got really choked up when he told his story. Yeah. I'm trying to think about you, McKenna, like as a 20-something, thinking about planning your family at some point, mm -hmm. you know, maybe learning about these different approaches might lead you to think about things ahead of time, you know, or to, mm -hmm. to seek out education ahead of time. Absolutely. Well, I've learned so much just in this series. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, me and Sean are going to be like the best. Yeah, parents. So you really are. We're getting all of this education. I mean, I'm not ready, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm not ready either, but we will be. I remember for a long time, mom considered adoption and we talked about it and that was not the right choice for her family, but it could be the right choice for my family. And mm -hmm. I will absolutely consider it, especially because I've had many people in my life adopt two of your closest friends mom have adopted. Yeah. And so seeing such beautiful families really making an impact and, and leading these wonderful lives. And we love their kids with all our hearts like that is so rewarding. And so I feel really lucky to have had that exposure early on. Yeah. And often you hear about the challenging parts and the scary parts, just like with anything in life you mm -hmm. hear you know, that's what makes headlines. But had I not seen through my two closest friends, how beautiful their story is, and then to hear Rob's beautiful story, you know, those are the things that young parents considering adoption should hear, you know, yeah, it's, for it's, sure. it's, you know, those other things are rare. And also, common in every single family dynamic for challenges to come about. Yeah. yeah. We all have friends who have been through some challenges with their parents or as parents. Yeah, but there's also really, really beautiful, lovely families created all different types of ways. For sure. And it's so inspiring. So inspiring. What are your thoughts on all of that, Sean? Do you want to share anything about like your future plans or daydreams? Please do. Um, <laughs> so we finally talked about it again recently, and it wasn't like my idea of eventually parenting wasn't instantly rebutted so that's <laughs> a big show. sounds Ooh. good but we you know the way the world is though it's going to be five to ten years because i i can't even imagine the the current events right now with the pandemic and everything else um i think we'll actually at least be able to see either way what the world is really going to look like after this because we, we're just in the middle of it right now and this is a huge change for us all so especially like you said if you're planning these things out so carefully that's definitely a factor 
Um, so that's on my mind. But all the things like like Rob t- told us today, all the things that you prepare for as an issue or a concern might end up not even being a concern. So that could end up great. But also just the, you know, as a gay parent or anything like that, those were concerns. But now, I mean, if he could do it 16 years ago as a gay parent in Arizona and not have any issues this whole time with that side of things, then that's really inspiring. That blew yeah. my mind, actually. <laughs> yeah. Something that I would challenge the two of you to consider. Um, I know that it's really understandable to say that in this world, it would be really challenging to bring a child into it. As a side note, why sh- maybe she's directing this at both of us. I said that like yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. The two of you say that all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the two of you. Not in this, in this economy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But guess what? If you are going to adopt, you're not bringing a child into this world. They're already here. So you might as well love them. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They have to live through this craziness anyway. So why not? Just... Yeah, they might as well have someone amazing to scoop them up. Yep. That's great. I think that was a really great conversation today. And I'm really excited to share that because we don't often get to hear stories about families like this in so many different ways. And I think it's so valuable to hear, especially because there are so many families out there who have lived these experiences themselves. Yeah. And we know that in every series, but especially in parenting, we're not going to be able to give you every perspective and scenario um, because it is so dense. Yeah. (laughs) But we hope that you'll be able to take something away from this. So please, everyone grab a cup of tea and enjoy. Health is understanding what you need. Being informed. Finding that balance of mental and physical. Building yourself a support system. Figuring things out on my own and not letting it hold me back. You do kind of have to advocate for yourself. Because health, it's personal. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rob. I appreciate the invitation. It's good to be here. Thanks, Sean. You're the parent of twin teens, which is already a complicated arrangement. Being a parent is a rewarding and challenging endeavor for anyone. But on top of the typical challenges, you have other challenges to consider. You've been through adoption, you're a gay dad, and you are co-parenting. Currently, you're navigating the complicated topics of race and socioeconomics with your kids during this tumultuous time of high school, and not to mention COVID. You also mentioned that you don't feel like you have any big answers since you're in the middle of it all, but from what we know, you're able to handle it all in such a positive and supportive way for your entire family. Uh, Would you like to take a moment to tell us a little bit about yourself and your family? Sure. Yeah, it it sounds pretty daunting when you list out all those things that are going on right now, doesn't it? Everything. No, but I I feel like, yeah, my life is just like everybody else's, so I, I feel like, boy, everybody's going through some stuff right now. But I'll, yeah, I'll give you a little bit of background on me. Uh, so I am going into or have entered my fifth decade now. So I've <laughs> been um, around for a little while and maybe, you know, a parenting journey started about 20 years ago um, when uh, my partner and I first started considering adoption. You know, uh, 20 years ago, believe it or not, as a gay couple, uh, adoption in Arizona, at least, was... It was a pretty easy process, at least legally, to begin and get through. Really? Um, My understanding is it might not be quite as easy now, or at least uh, that's what I'm hearing. But back then, uh, yeah, we worked with an adoption agency. Our intention was to adopt through the state foster care system, um, which, you know, at the time required a lot of classes and education, certification, um, and then all the normal home studies and social work stuff and everything. 
But at the time, I think that was a, you know, it was a, a exciting adventure that we were going on. Um, and it went actually very, very smoothly. We were uh, scheduled to be placed, or, or at least to meet in person, a brother and sister combination. We, we wanted to adopt uh, a sibling group, two to three uh, children between the ages of zero and four, I think were our criteria. Okay. And we were, we were scheduled to be placed with a sibling group of three uh, brothers and sisters, I think ranging in age from like two to four or something like that. Uh, so quite a, um, quite a group that was coming out of the foster care system. Um, and yeah, they had been severed from their parents uh, for abuse reasons, I believe. So uh, we were just about ready to do that when a single mom walked into the agency and asked if she could place her twins up for adoption. And that was kind of abnormal for this agency. They specialized in foster care system work. Uh, so they didn't really specialize in private adoptions or people who just wanted to place uh, their children for adoption right out of the gate. Okay. But of course they said yes. And they said, here's the book of all the families that are ready to adopt right now. Why don't you look through this and pick, pick a family out? And that was on a Wednesday. They called us on Friday and said, hey, this mom is interested in, in you guys, you know, would you be interested? And that's, of course, the first we heard of it. Right. Um, so they sent us like a one-page sheet. They didn't have much information on the kids. You know, they didn't have much information at all, which is, you know, the exact opposite of a foster care situation where you have, you know, you know reams of court information and everything else. Mm -hmm. So we had, you know, one or two pages to go on, which was basically the mom filling out a little questionnaire, you know, in handwriting. We said, sure, consider us, not thinking much of it. And literally Monday morning, I got a call at work at like 8.15 a.m. I was sitting at my desk drinking my coffee and they said, you know, it was our adoption worker. And she said, hey, the mom picked you. Can you come down and pick up the kids right now? Oh <laughs> literally. Right now. Oh, my God. That made me feel so emotional. Yeah. So it was crazy. Uh, you know, we, you know, I called Charles. We still couldn't really believe what was happening. I raced home to pick him up. And then they said, oh, make sure you have formula and car seats because you can't take them without car seats. Right. So we had no idea what car seats to get. So we went to target <laughs> on the way and there was a mom there in target. And we told her what was going on. She started crying and like, didn't know what to do. And, you know, of course that got us worked up. So we picked out two car seats and some formula that we thought was best and some bottles. I raised bawling in target. <laughs> yes. Totally. Made it. Showed up at the adoption agency, of course, met the kids, met the mom. It was extremely emotional because the mom um, was going through a rough time. She already had a one-year-old. She uh, had an open CPS case with the one-year-old, was about ready to lose her one-year-old and was afraid she would lose her, her newborn twins also. Oh, wow. Um, so she had made the decision to give up the twins in the effort to be able to keep her one-year-old, knowing that there was no way could, she could swing keeping all three. My um, goodness. Which was horrible. Yeah. You know? And, you know, you could see it on her face and, you know, it was... It was Talk about a mix of being excited about something and then also being sad about the situation at the exact same time for the exact same reason. So, yeah, so that was the beginning of what we went through. That was 16 years ago now. Uh -huh. And so, yeah, so I've got two 16-year-old twins, a boy and a girl. They've been wonderful, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, when you hear all the horror stories about, you know, the terrible twos or, you know, the toddler years or whatever, these kids were great. The only thing they would get upset about is when they didn't have food. They, they, were, they were in the beginning and they continue to be big eaters. They like food. They like a variety of food. Their favorite thing is to go out to dinner um, and try new restaurants. So 
And that's one of my favorite games. Too, that's, so that's so fun. I was going to say that's relatable. <laughs> exactly. So in the meantime, um, Sean, like you mentioned, some other things that happened. Uh, so Charles and I separated and divorced late 2016. So what is that? Going on four years ago now. And of course, anybody who's been through that knows it's a terrible experience for everybody and you know, particularly for the kids. And it certainly was and continues to be. And some other things that, you know, obviously as a gay couple, you know, adoption, it was a, I don't even want to say a unique experience. It was actually a very smooth experience for us. Um, That's great. Uh, throughout yeah, the home study, the, the working with the agency that we worked with, it was smooth sailing the whole way. The judge that we worked with, there were no issues. Um, I think we hit a sweet spot in Arizona where the pendulum you know, politics swings back and forth all the time. And the pendulum had really swung toward making it as, as efficient and easy as possible to adopt kids out of the uh, foster care system. The foster care system had reached an all time high of children who are waiting to be adopted. And I think at the time, you know, the powers that be had, you know, greased the skids a little bit to try to get kids adopted. And I think that helped us a lot. You know, I've heard that the pendulum has swung back and forth a couple times since then. It's gotten harder and then easier and harder again. And it is kind of weird when you think about, you know, how politics affects such important things like yeah, that. But there's kids just sitting there waiting for a family and they're at the mercy of whoever's in office. Exactly. And, you know, being away from it, I'm not as in tune with it right now. Although, you know, I have heard in Arizona that there were a lot of rumblings that you know, they did want to make it more difficult for gay parents to adopt, which, uh, you know, I'm not sure what's happening right now, but that's concerning. But I won't be adopting anymore. At least I don't think so. so. <laughs> You're all set for now. <laughs> well, they're almost going to college, so maybe you could start over. <laughs> yes, that's what we're crossing our fingers. Yeah, we're talking about college every day. In fact, this weekend, we might drive down to Tucson to see the University of Arizona just so they can see the campus. That's great. Amazing. So some of the things, yeah, that made our experience a little bit different, um, you know, being gay was certainly one. And then um, when we had entered the adoption process, we had told the agency that we were open to any race and we definitely wanted a sibling group. So that opened the door significantly to a lot of choices. In, in the foster care system, obviously, there are often sibling groups that uh, the state wants to keep together. Often, some of the children are older, and I think we had capped at age four or five, so that limited our choices. Most of the kids who were involved in foster care were not Caucasian, and uh, Charles and I are both white, so uh, that wasn't a concern for us. And we didn't even think it was a concern really all the way through. And our kids ended up, they're Hispanic, they're of Mexican background. Up until probably the kids started at the age of middle school, we didn't think anything of it. Um, and I don't think the kids thought much of it. Now, maybe they did, but, you know, we never perceived it. But um, what we noticed maybe beginning third, fourth, fifth grade was um, our kids seemed to choose as friends other Hispanic kids um, almost exclusively which, you know, was eyebrow raising a little bit uh, because the, the, the middle school that they went to was probably one third white, one third Hispanic and one third black African-American at the time. Um, so extremely mixed, um, extremely diverse. And so it was a little eyebrow raising that, you know, most of the kids that they hung out with were Hispanic. And interestingly, that has continued all the way through to this day, in, including dating. You know, now that they are dating, both of them, they're on their you know, second or third, you know, high school relationship by this time. And all the kids that they've chosen to date have been Hispanic also. 
that wasn't really something I was expecting. I'm not sure why I probably should have expected it. Um, but in a lot of the discussions that I've had with both kids around what they struggle with socially at school is issues of fitting in, which who doesn't, you know, every middle school or high school, you know, has that issue, Right. but very much colored by the perspective of race. They certainly both identify as Hispanic and of Mexican background. And, you know, that's something we've kind of celebrated throughout their childhood and they don't speak Spanish. You know, they weren't yeah. ra- raised in a, predominantly, you know, in a, in a Hispanic background. So that, that to me is eye opening and something that I wasn't expecting and something that I'm not sure how to deal with or if I even need to. It has raised issues that they've brought up with us around, you know, that it's odd for them to be with a white family and, you know, they'll call each other white when they're making fun of each other, um, which is (laughs) a little bit surprising. They eat a bite of salsa and one of them says, Oh, that's too hot. The other one will say, Oh, you're just too white. You can't handle it. It's coloring a lot of their world outlook, which is interesting. And yeah, I wonder how much of it is, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, in Arizona, we went through a really difficult time a couple of years ago with Sheriff Joe mm-hmm. and profiling of Hispanics and, you know, talk of deportation and people not being welcome. And the case ended up being thrown out by the Supreme Court or the, the law, the, the show me your papers law here in Arizona, which I'm sure a lot of people heard mm-hmm. about. So it, it has been very much a social issue. But it's interesting because, you know, you always imagine it's not an issue in your house, you know, or we didn't think that, you know, it would affect us, but it certainly does. Yeah. All of those things that you think are going to be the issue often aren't. And it's just something (laughs) that just kind of hits you in the face from the side. So do they feel uh, connected to your culture heritage or to you as their like family base or family unit? So certainly the nuclear family, for sure, even through the divorce, I think, you know, that's remained very tight. I don't have any extended family in Arizona. I moved here from the East Coast. uh, So all my extended family is back East. And especially now we don't see them very much. Right. Uh, Charles's family is all local um, and they see them. um, My kids see them often. You know, they feel connected, but Charles isn't super close to his extended family. So, you know, there isn't a tight everyday kind of thing going on. So yes, tight, but you know, how does that fit into the broader culture is is the question. Mm -hmm. We did participate in the Black Lives Matter marches here in Arizona, which were really big in downtown Phoenix. That's great. And I think that was eye-opening for the kids. They really identified with what was happening. They identified with uh, the marchers and the protesters. You know, Allie wears her, I can't breathe mask pretty much everywhere she goes, which is Again, interesting because I would, you know, I'd like to think that they weren't particularly exposed to discrimination as kids. So, Mm -hmm. and I don't know of any firsthand experience they have with outright discrimination, but the fact that they identify so closely with, you know, the the protests of the Black Lives Movement, I think is interesting. There's a social component, but I think there's a real personal component there too. Yeah, it's not always overt, right? The underlying feeling that they might have as other or that's really interesting have you had a chance to chat with them about that or really dive into it yet yeah we talk about it a lot actually because i feel that it's you know an issue that's on their minds yeah um, and especially my daughter and it's interesting i don't know that she can she doesn't 
have the words to articulate it as clearly as she's probably feeling it. Mm-hmm. Um, what she'll often say is things like, you don't understand dad, you know, you're white, so you just don't understand, but you, you don't know what, what we face at school. Hmm. And I'll say, probably right. You know, what do you face? And she said, well, it's just different. You don't understand. You know, so it's it's difficult for her to clarify exactly what it is, but it is something that they that they think about. Absolutely. I, I love how you, you kind of approach that too. Like, you're right. <laughs> I probably don't understand that. Um, so I think that's so valuable on its own. So I think that's a, at least the best way to handle it for now. So I also wonder how much of it is related to adoption itself, because throughout their lives, the kids have always been super curious, their birth parents and, you know, their birth sibling. And given, you know, that in Arizona, there's, there's such a rich cultural heritage of Hispanic culture, I do get the sense sometimes that they feel like they missed out on that. And if they you know, hadn't been given up for adoption, you know, the old, you know, if my parents didn't give me up and not want me anymore, they would have potentially had, you know, participated in that Hispanic culture that they don't get now. And I think that's part of it. I think that's part of a, mm. a grief or a wondering what they lost as part of being adopted kids that they don't have that. And I think that that's something that they miss. Where they wonder about. Yeah. My two best friends actually have adopted children from one of them from another country. And um, recently she's been really interested in knowing about her birth parents. And so they did some exploring and found her and had some connection. And I think as soon as that was realized, it was like a peacefulness inside of her. And she didn't really need much more than that other than to know like why or what her life was like, her mom's life was like. And so, you know, you probably do have a lot of questions. You know, your imagination can run away with you sometimes, for sure. Absolutely. I think another component of that is being raised by two dads. You know, there's obviously that, what would it be like to have a mom? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you connect that missing mom to the missing Hispanic culture, I'm sure it's doubly potent, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. for sure. the wondering and the, they have lots of Hispanic friends with the, uh, the Hispanic mom who's there, you know, yelling at her kids and making sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and cooking and feeding them. Eating the amazing food. Yeah. And if they love to <laughs> yeah. eat, stop. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I think that that's part of it too. Yeah. So it sounds like you celebrate a lot of all really important things in your family. So going to Black Lives Matters marches, celebrating their culture. Um, what other types of things do you celebrate to sort of show all of the variations and important aspects of your family? Just all the normal stuff. You know, school is a big deal right now. So uh, they both, for years, they went to uh, the same school, you know, obviously the neighborhood public school. Um, but in high school, they split. Allison goes to a artistic charter school. And then Asher goes to an all-boys Catholic school here in Phoenix, which is interestingly the same type of school that I went to back in Delaware. I went to an all-boys Catholic school. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, high school is stressful, but they both are dealing with their sophomores now, but they, Allie hasn't even gone back yet. So they're still very much beginning that high school experience. Mm-hmm. Asher going from a small public school to a huge school of all-boys, you know, very strict, very high academic standards has been a struggle for him. And then Allison, just all the art stuff at her school, you know, half her day is kind of advanced choir and uh, <laughs> band plays and all that kind of That's thing. That's cool. Um, 
Yeah. So that, that causes lots of activities, you know, a busy schedule in the evening. Well, it did up until COVID, you know, early morning practices for Asher with football and all kinds of evening activities that, you know, all the driving around. So when you ask, you know, <laughs> what do you guys celebrate? It feels like being in the car, driving around to activities. Um. <laughs> <laughs> We're celebrating life. Okay. I, I like that. That's a great celebration. <laughs> it's something we we're definitely missing right now. Yes, it is. So yeah, that went blank there for a while. And then Asher's football just started back up. So that's been a busy time right now. You have a busy, challenging career in addition to being a full-time parent. So how do you try to balance work and parenting? That's a good question. So I think, you know, the real busy part of my career was really the first 10 years of their life. That's where you know, I was working my 10 or 12 hour days, you know, trying to, to grow our company and get it established and everything. Honestly, recently, the last couple of years, luckily, you know, I've been in a better place and had a lot my evenings free and my weekends free for the most part. That's so, great. you know, while they're at school, I'm at work, um, but I haven't been traveling as much. And luckily in the evenings, I'm able to spend time with them and on the weekends, spend time with them. I know a lot of families, you know, especially right now with COVID, that is a struggle because, you know, I'm lucky I work in healthcare, you know demand for our services is, you know, as high now as it ever has been. I've got no worries about, you know, our company, you know, running into trouble or anything. So definitely really lucky there. And I think that's, that raises, you know, one of the tension points that we struggle with is my ex is in real estate and, you know, that's a different, a different beast right now. And if you don't work, you don't make money in real estate. You know, there's, it's not a, you can't work from home and, you know, socially isolate and just get a paycheck. So that's caused some tension for the kids. And I'm sure this is something that lots of families struggle with, especially divorced families is, you know, the differing economic dynamic between the, the different families and one family having to work all the time, the other family being more comfortable or whatever. And that's something the kids wrestle with because, you know, they go back and forth between the two houses constantly. What used to be one family where we were all in the same boat together, now the two boats are different and they're kind of going in different directions and that puts a lot of stress on the kids. I can imagine. You know, especially right now in Asher school, you know, he goes to, you know, an expensive private school where a lot of the kids that he goes to school with come from families with significant resources. Mm-hmm. And given his, you know, cultural issues and, you know, the knowledge of his birth parents and then also kind of the different financial directions the two families are going, there's this tug of, you know, am I poor or am I Am I rich? Is it bad to be rich? Is it bad to be poor? Hmm. If I get a new car for when I'm 16, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Hmm. You know, should I feel guilty if I wear an expensive pair of sneakers to school? Is that good? Is that bad? You know, that's something that my kids are definitely wrestling with. Wow. Like as you mentioned, Karen, I don't I don't have a good answer for that. I don't really know what the right answer is. You know, my my gut is to tell them be comfortable with who you are and you know be glad and don't be ashamed of not having to worry a lot about money. But I don't know that that's the best message for them. You know, I, I, it's, it's, it's tough. Yeah, it depends on how you define rich, right? Yeah. A- a- absolutely. You know, or even if you say, you know, comfortable, you know, there are a lot of kids who aren't comfortable. A lot of their friends aren't comfortable. Yeah. You know, a lot of their friends aren't allowed to go to the movies because they don't have money to go to the movies. And that puts my kids in a difficult spot around, should they be happy they can go to the movies? Mm-hmm. You know, or should they, should they identify more with the kids who can't go to the movies? Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think it's an idea that a lot of people are becoming more aware of too in the climate right now is being really sensitive to everyone's financial and cultural situations and being respectful of each other. And I think there is that dynamic 
happening a lot right now too. I think that's super interesting. And and another thing that you probably didn't expect when you were no. going into the teenage years. Yeah. No, not at all. And it's interesting too, even with my peers at work, who I don't feel are as exposed to these kinds of issues with their kids. It's difficult even sometimes to find people to talk to about it. You know, of course, my ex understands, but, you know, a lot of my, my friends at work don't. And they think it's silly, actually, that, you know, it's kind of petty. You know, why would my kids worry about something? They're being silly. Um, and I don't like to discount it. No. <laughs> yeah, no. That's real. And it's it's multifaceted, right? It has something to do with their identity and their culture and how they see themselves and who their friends are. Right. That's really tangled. We, we've talked to so many great people already about, you know, whenever something like that comes up, you just listen to your kids and that's valid. Let's hear you out. Don't dismiss that because I feel like that can be so damaging. And then they start worrying about it more in different ways that we could have never even realized if, oh, that's silly. Just go enjoy your new car, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and this is this is the time you know, where they start to think about career too. And, you know, what do they want to be when they grow up? Yeah. And, you know, that's colored by, you know, all kinds of things. Do you want to go to college? Do you not want to go to college? Do you want to you know, shoot for a job that is, you know, set yourself up for a career where you expect to make money or is that not important? You know? And my kids are wrestling with that right now and they don't have answers. They don't know what they want to be when they grow up. Yeah. So Dr. Becky, we interviewed her a few weeks ago on the podcast and she was so amazing. You said something that made me think of this. One of her quotes was, something I'd say to teens listening is it is not your fault if your parents can't hear your underlying feelings and needs as valid. And it sounds like you really recognize that what they're going through is truly valid. Yeah. And, you know, what if I can't hear? What if I, or what if I hear it, but I totally don't understand it? Mm -hmm. I think that's probably common for a lot of kids. I mean, I remember, you know, what kid doesn't remember as a teenager or adult doesn't remember as a teenager? Oh, my parents just didn't understand me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just on different levels, I guess. <laughs> Although it does frustrate me when it's about math and my kid is arguing with me doing math incorrectly and I say, okay, that's not right. Yeah. Say, no, it is right. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. I really did do sophomore math and I really know what it and uh, there's a right answer and a wrong answer. Said every parent ever. Yeah. Well, I remember sitting at the table with my mom crying when she was trying to teach me math. I swear, I think every parent and kid has had that experience. <laughs> Why do they keep changing math? <laughs> and it doesn't help that it's 930 at night and you're ready for bed. They just told you that they have this, all this math homework that they have to get done. And <laughs> so I'd kind of like to know, since you've been co-parenting, kind of what successes you've seen with that? Yeah. One of the most difficult things about co-parenting from other uh, separated parents that I've talked to is decision-making everything from, you know, in times of COVID, should kids be allowed to go to parties? Should they go back to school? Should they participate in sports to, you know, even more important things like, you know, how important is homework or, you know, um, scheduling, making decisions about schedules and all that kind of thing. I think one of the, successes I would characterize for us um, in our my relationship with my ex is I think the decision making has gone very smoothly. You know, that was one area we typically agreed at on um, when we were together and it has continued to be relatively smooth, which I think is enormously important for the kids. Last thing they want to do is be caught in a tug of war between, you know, parents who can't decide on important decisions about the kids' lives. 
luckily, that has gone smoothly. I think both of us have prioritized that. And at times where, you know, our personal differences and arguments, you know, which are typically about me and him, um, have started to affect the kids. I think we've, we've tried to back away and cool down so that it doesn't affect the kids, at least in terms of decision-making over their lives. Now, in terms of just the separation of the family and, you know, two different houses and all that kind of thing, obviously that has a huge impact on the kids. And that's other things that I think that have gone well, we live pretty close to each other. I mean, I, it's hard to overstate the difficulty of kids having to go back and forth between two houses, you know, um, especially as young teenagers, you know, they've got all their gear that they have to take back and forth and their computers and their chargers and their phones and their chargers and, you know, the important <laughs> things that they need for school and up when the kid forgets something at the other house and they need it for school and, you know, neither parent wants to go through the effort of driving back over to the other house to, you know, get the stuff. I forgot. It's easy to make the kid feel guilty over, you know, well, why didn't you remember it? And I told you to, you know, didn't you have all your stuff? I often think, you know, is that really fair to put all that responsibility on a kid to go back hmm. and forth between two houses, you know, two or three times a week sometimes, and to remember all your stuff, you know, when you're 13, 14, 15 years old, you know, it's, that's, that's a pretty heavy burden. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually heard about families, and this probably doesn't work well either, about families who the kids stay in one house and the parents move back and forth. Yes. <laughs> that seems that more called? fair. The nesting <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> approach. That was actually something that we briefly considered, you know, during separation and really decided against it. It doesn't sound any less disruptive, but I just found that interesting. Yeah. So, you know, as you're kind of going through these challenges and you said that your family is back on the East Coast and your ex-partner's family is more local, but he's not super close with some of them. What's kind of your support system like, or how do you support each other, um, especially through something kind of like we're all going through right now? That's a really good question. And I, I feel like, you know, my biggest support system is my new partner who, you know, uh, I rely on significantly and, you know, is a, is a huge, makes life a lot, a lot easier um, and a lot more pleasant right now. But outside of that, you know, what do we, have? most people have their, their work you know, folks and, you know, their, their friends that they would, you know, do activities with on the side. Um, and with activities being curtailed, that's really tough right now. Um, yeah. so, you know, text messages, memes, you know, yeah. are, are, <laughs> you know, that's one of the things that I, that I do think about is, you know, how should I have a better support system? How should the kids have a better support system? You know, my parents are, are older now back East and their health is starting to go downhill and, mm -hmm feel that like, you know, we need to be going back East more to support them. So yeah, those, the old family support systems are kind of fading and, you know, it's tough to replace them right now. That's a really good point. I think we're all trying to figure out how to adjust our support systems and support each other right now mm -hmm. and not be, you know, especially when we're all uh, maybe in the same house or around a specific group of people or quarantined with a specific group of people, how to be supportive and also give each other space. And like, there's so many new things <laughs> yeah. to manage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think about it for the kids too, because, you know, at that age, what's, what's your support system? You know, it's hanging out with friends. It's going to birthday parties, hanging out at the mall, you know, going to movies. Yeah. You know, and oh. I think it's really important for kids to to be able to socialize with their peers at this. This is when they're trying to figure out who they are as, you know, a, you know, burgeoning young adult, 
And if you don't have friends that you're hanging out with, how do you do that? You know, how do you go through that process? And there's social media, but <laughs> exactly. that's what I was going to say. It's, it, it's on social media. And yeah. that is a, none of us know how that's going to turn out. No. You know, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so novel. Yeah. And, yes. you know, wonder what it means for the future. I do have to admit that I've been kind of glad to not be up late at night worrying about kids right now because I have a teenager too. Because, but you know, this would be about the time Max would start being like, I'll be home at 11 or, you know, after the movie. (laughs) And then you're just like, oh gosh. (laughs) So I had my very first experience with that last week. Well, the, um, so Allison's six, the kids are 16. They don't have their license yet. They'll have them in December. They have their permits. Um, but for the very first time, Allison was talking to a boy online that just a friend of a friend or whatever. Um, she'd been talking to him on Instagram and whatever for, you know, a couple weeks. And, you know, he said, oh, I can come over and pick you up and we can go to Dutch Bros and get coffee or go to a coffee shop or something. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And I felt like okay, the right answer at this age is yes, you know, that is okay. You know, it's <laughs> you know, kids should be able to go out to Dutch Bros and get coffee together and, you know, meet and socialize and whatnot. But that was the very first time I faced that, oh, my gosh, you know, do I really put my my daughter in a car with a boy alone, mm-hmm. even though they're yeah. only a couple blocks away? Are they really going to Dutch Bros? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I told Allison, make sure your tracker's on on your phone and, you know, <laughs> you know I'm going to be checking in every five minutes. Um, but then, of course, the, the boy blew her off. and so Oh, like, of course. <laughs> After all that. Oh, man. This is, there's a lesson in there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. And what makes it worse with social media, even the kids, you know, forget about it sometimes. He said, oh, my mom is sick and she doesn't want me to go. All the while, Allison is watching him go to, you know, drive to the mall and then to do- Dave and Buster's on his Instagram. Uh, so He's not even yeah. smart. He knew that he was lying. <laughs> yeah. Dodged That's a bullet. So yes. <laughs> Exactly. And it doesn't get any That's better so as funny. he gets older. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. As a gay guy, believe me, I tell her all the time, boys, don't don't trust them. They're going to blow you off. <laughs> and if they text you, you know, 50-50 chance it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. Encouraging. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of talked about how your adoption journey had some challenges or experiences that were different or not what you expected when maybe you started. What are some things or something that has happened along your adoption journey that wasn't something you expected, but is just better? Yeah, adoption's a big thing. And it's different for everyone. And and from what I hear from a lot of my friends is, it was crazy, but not at all what I thought it would be. And so it sounds like yours was really kind of easy, but also different than you thought. Yeah, I, I, I guess I shouldn't discount the, the the process of leading up to and moving through the adoption itself. You know, in hindsight, it's kind of a warm blur to me. Um, but at the time, it was it was pretty stressful. And the uncertainty of never, you know, I laugh about, oh, they called us on a Monday and said, come pick up the kids. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's a funny story now that it's 16 years later. But, you know, I think for most people, they can imagine not knowing if you're going to have children, you know, from one day to the next. And then adopting kids and not knowing their medical history or, you know, anything about them really, you know, and all of a sudden having good point that was stressful. What things turned out better than we expected. You know, we had no medical issues with the kids. We had no developmental issues, you know, all the things you worry about as an adoptive parent and which 
you are trained to handle as an adoptive parent working through the foster care system where there are, are so many issues of abuse and neglect and developmental delays and, you know, behavioral issues. We just didn't have any of it. Uh, the kids, you know, I sound like a, a proud parent, but, you know, I, mm-hmm. I'd have to say they were perfect, you know, they, the, and they continue to be, you know, as perfect as any teenager can be really. Yeah. Um, and so that was a, a huge welcome, you know, surprise that, you know, we didn't have any of that. Now, who knows, you know, stuff could still come up, but, you know, no more so than with any other child biological otherwise. How lovely must that have been for you to be chosen? Did that feel so special? Yes. And it was something that we told the kids all the time as little kids that it was their mom that chose this family for them specifically. That's really wonderful. You know, she did not want to um, stay connected, um, but she did surprisingly write them a letter a few months after the adoption that, of course, we've kept. And she kind of explained her decision, you know, of why she thought this family was best for them and, you know, that we're their dads now. And, you know, it's quite a touching you know, letter to be written. She's 17 years old. So, you know, to have wow. someone so young write something so meaningful that, you know, is so important to the kids for the rest of their lives. It's such a big choice. And so I'm sure she. Though she was so young, I'm sure that kind of helped her kind of realize so much about life in general. And that's huge. Hard to put yourself in that situation and imagine it. I can't. Yeah. On that note, it sounds like that process kind of came together so perfectly for you. Best case scenario, basically. But anyone who is looking to adopt, maybe currently they're going through the process or they're thinking of starting it, uh, especially for same-sex parents. Do you have any advice as they kind of jump into things? Sure. I mean, I have friends that have gone through this and part of dad groups, you know, of adoptive gay, gay parents. And there are so many different approaches that have so many different, you know, complications to them. You know, there's the surrogacy path of, uh, that a lot of gay men try. There's private adoption, um, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people try. There's international adoption. And then there's the foster care, you know, state system adoption. Our decision was never difficult. We knew right away that we wanted to do foster care um, ad- adoption. Okay. Didn't have a lot of, of thoughts about the other ones, but I know that the private and the surrogacy process is extremely challenging. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty there as well. I can speak from my own experience with the foster care system in Arizona. The process, at least when we went through it, is pretty straightforward. It's rigorous. It's difficult mm-hmm. um, in terms of the classes yeah. <laughs> you have to do, the certifications and everything. But it is a pretty well-worn process. Um, and if you follow it and you follow it successfully, um, you will be eligible to adopt through the foster care system. And then it's a matter of you know, basically making a match with the right kids because there are a lot of kids waiting to be adopted in Arizona. Hmm. One of the most important things, though, is sibling groups, because most kids that are available in Arizona are part of a group. So being open to adopt sibling groups is a huge deciding factor of how many kids are going to be potentially available. Uh, I know a lot of gay parents are, um, you know, the initial adoption, you want the the young, you know, newborn, ideally, and just one. (laughs) Right, right. Dip your toe into parenting a bit. (laughs) (laughs) It's difficult. Foster, the foster system, yeah, because most of the kids are not newborns. Most are ha, have been separated from their parents for a reason, and so uh, you know they're they're older. 
I would encourage any gay parent who is thinking about adoption and might not be seriously thinking about going through the foster care system to reconsider it. Um, it has been a wonderful experience for us. Um, and while you still face the uncertainty of, you know, what kids will you be placed with and, you know, the match process, a lot of the uncertainty of the, the getting ready process goes away. And the, um, and I think that's, for us, that was a really good thing. The idea of, you know, putting ourselves out there through a private adoption and waiting for, you know, a mom to pick us would have been more nerve-wracking. It turns yeah. out that that's what happened in the end, but that's not what we... Isn't that funny? Yeah. That's not what you planned for. <laughs> it was meant to be. Yeah, exactly. For the record, if you carry your own child, you don't know what you're going to get either. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's stressful. It's yeah. all stressful. Uh, that's so valuable. Thank you so much. Um, and I have... One quick follow-up question, because I think this is something that has been on my mind for a long, long time, um, and it's not something I thought to ask anyone yet. How do you navigate the term dad or father? Do you both get called dad? or? <laughs> so that is the most frequently asked question on all the adoptive, the gay dad adoption groups. You know, uh, as soon as the, the the couple starts thinking about adopting, they immediately post to all these groups. So, what do, what do your kids call you? Is it Daddy and Papa? Is it you know they call you by your name? And it is it it's true. It's 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 a question that all gay dads face. It depends on the age that you adopt the kids. You know, if you adopt them as young babies, basically, of course, you get to decide. I think every gay couple approaches it differently, and I've heard of all kinds of different answers. Ours is pretty unique. So we didn't pick, we thought about it, we talked about it, and we decided early when the kids were still babies that we weren't going to say, you know, one dad is Papa and one dad is Daddy or Dad and Daddy or, you know, Daddy Rob and Daddy Charles. A lot of gay dads do that, Daddy Rob, Daddy Charles. We just, we left it open um, and we figured it would be organic and it would be what it was. We both <laughs> wanted to be dad. I mean, I yeah. think that was the issue. Yeah. You know, neither one of us wanted to pick Papa. We'll the kids one pick. Of, yeah. so, we, so, so we left it organic. And so what ended up happening, which is we're the only ones that I've ever heard this. Um, so when they were really young, when they were learning to speak, you know, what, you know, one, one and a half in that, that neighborhood, they would call us both daddy. But at some point they started identifying the daddy that was not in the room as the one daddy. They would say the one, meaning the other one. Huh. Oh. You know, so they would call the one they were talking to would be daddy. And the other one would be the one dad, the other dad, or, but it was not clear. And then we kind of latched onto that because it was funny. Um, and we would at first argue about who was one dad, you know, and, and then, <laughs> whoever wasn't the one dad would be the two dad. <laughs> it stuck for some reason that Charles ended up being one dad and I'm two dad. That's so funny. Oh. It's funny when other people outside the family hear it because it's an odd thing to hear, but for our kids, they're super used to it. And, and, and that's how they think of us as one dad and two dad. <laughs> and as they got older, they kind of had to start differentiating. Right. But it, when they're younger, it's just in the moment, it's organic. It's, it flows. And it was a it was a running joke for the family the whole time too. So it, it was. Uh, I love it. We, uh, yeah, <laughs> we enjoyed it. Between the two houses, you know, because they spent equal time in each house, you know, they're both home, so they almost stick to the same thing. They say the other house. It's not something you'd probably planned for, so it's it's interesting that it kind of just developed. I was hoping it was like they just started calling you different names. Like, yeah, so we just thought we'd let them choose themselves, and they ended up calling us like Jeremy and Bartholomew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
been worried about. I mean, it could have happened. Why not? Your kid sounds so wonderful. Oh, thank and you. It sounds like they're extremely bright and aware and sweet as can be. And I'm so glad that that process works so well out for you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. No, they're doing good. You know, like any other kid, you know, there's ups and downs and, you know, it's not, it's not all perfect, but I'm proud of them. Rob, what are you reading or listening to right now that makes you feel happy or inspired? So as a young person, all the way up until probably 10 years ago, you know, I was an ardent reader and would read everything voraciously, you know, one or two books a week. Since the internet, though, that's been more and more difficult. I find myself losing attention when I open a book and read, getting past four or five pages, I just get antsy. I think it's an attention thing. So I do books on tape now. So at any moment, I have three or four books on tape open that I'm listening to, you know, <laughs> in parallel. Um, and they're usually very different from each other. You know, I've got my my serious books and my fluff books. Very, very diverse. I mean, what am I listening? Right now, I've got a really pulpy science fiction or fantasy series that I've been listening to. Um, really pulpy. <laughs> it's a Dungeons and Dragons. It's about as corny and, and cheese ball as you can get. And it's probably 30 books in the series. And I'm on book number nine or 10. So like. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And then um, I've got. Uh, my morning walking book is Bleak House by Charles Dickens because it's super long and very wondrous, you know, kind of slow and steady. <laughs> so that's what I listen to when I'm walking in the morning. I'm listening to Fathers and Sons by uh, Turgenev, the Russian author. I love Russian fiction. Those are my serious books. I've got probably two or three nonfiction books going to space. One of the Democratic um, operatives from Bill Clinton wrote a book, and I'm listening to that. Okay. There's always lots of books open. This has been so amazing. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate all your time. Uh, Thank you. And thanks for being interested. Yeah, of course. Take care. Have a good one. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Health It's Personal. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts for bonus episodes and new releases every Wednesday. The Health It's Personal podcast is produced by me, McKenna Udi and hosted with the Phronesis Health Initiative team, Karen Jively and Sean Tingle. Special thanks to portrait artist Alexander, musical contributor Bernie Ramke, and to our guests and experts for their kindness and bravery in sharing their stories each week. Please listen, subscribe, engage, and send us topics we can explore that would help you on your journey. Because health, it's personal.